If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. It's episode 235. It's our August 2023 research review. And in this episode, we're going to talk about a few recently published studies on exercise and blood pressure, supplement contamination, and the age-old question, machines versus free weights. Uh, You can hear maybe some of the respiratory sounds of the second most handsome doctor in North America, <laughs> Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? I think you might be the only person who can hear those because of your your high quality headphones. At least I hope that's the case, but <laughs> that's true. Honestly, like when I go to edit these things, right? I'm like, I just got to take the breathy noise. I mean, cause we want you, we want to be close to the mic for like, you know, acoustical integrity, but we also don't want people to hear like, mouth breathing all bodily functions <laughs> yeah 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 like like if i have a tickle in my throat like i don't want the listeners to be like dude at, at 518 what happened i'm like yep there's a little hiccup <laughs> uh in any case uh, what's going on man i'm doing okay uh back in the hospital this week and um admitted a few folks today and i just finished up doing a little bit of conditioning on this sunday before we started recording Okay. So you just don't care about gains anymore. You're just going to do cardio. Yeah. I hopped on the rower for a bit, did some low intensity stuff. And that's, that's how you melt away is my understanding. Dude, I gotta, yeah, that's it. You're just atrophying. uh, You're trying (laughs) to accelerate the atrophy. You know, we should come up with a template called accelerated atrophy. Just like, like how to lose muscle as fast as possible. Don't train in high dose prednisone, maybe some like chemotherapy. <laughs> yeah. High dose prednisone, maybe uh, some uh, Tacro or Cerulimus, Cyril- something some like androgen that. androgen antagonists. Sure. Yeah. A little rapamycin as well. Uh-huh. Just stack it up right. And then uh, a really low, low protein diet, like super low. We'll see, see if we can get something like that going. Um, no, I went riding today and uh, feel, feeling good. Also did not fall. I would just like to throw that out there even though I did have another mechanical problem, <sighs> dude, of your body just, or of your bike of my bike. Can I just tell you that like, so most people who do, who don't ride, have never ridden something like this. You don't understand the, like you're already at base level, like maybe like RP five fear, like just, you're just, that's your resting level. You're on a dirt bike, on a track with changing conditions and a bunch of other people, you're RP five, even if you are like a really skilled rider, uh, and then when your bike starts making weird noises, particularly in high stakes situations where you're like going off a jump or at a high rate of speed and you're like, I, uh, I, I think this is badness. That RP immediately pegs to 10, mm-hmm. immediately pegs to 10. Yeah. I was going off the, uh, going off a jump and on the way up, the bike's just, whoop, whoop, whoop. 
and just locks up. And I'm like, <sighs> fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, I was fine. I did not fall. I just cruised to the side of the track. The only downside was I was probably, well, I didn't have my Apple watch on, but I was, it was about a 30 minute push of my bike from where I was to get back oh. to the truck. Oh, cause it was and, actually screwed up. Yeah. And it's funny because I saw my dad like at, by the truck. He's like, I see him like scanning the horizon. Like, where is he? Where is, and he only sees me when I'm like a hundred feet from the truck. <laughs> and at Convenient. that point he like comes over to, he comes over to help you. I'm like, I got it. Don't worry about it. Leonard. It's fine. So we'll see, we'll see what's going on with that. But, uh, yeah, we're recording this a little early because I'm heading off to Grand Cayman, uh, tomorrow. I know people at home are thinking, Oh, another vacation Feigen mom. You just told us that you rarely take vacation. Nope. Going down there, uh, Claire Zai, uh, who's a member of our coaching cadre. She's competing at the NAPF championships, basically the Pan Ams for powerlifting. Uh, Mike T is going to be there too. So we get to, you know, see him. I'll always enjoy that. And, uh, I will travel for powerlifting as much as we like gripe on this podcast about like, ah, powerlifting, blah, blah, blah. I'll, we just know like where it sits, like in the grand scheme of things, but both of us still it relatively get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And then, you know, just not charged to compete just yet. Although I feel like at some point your training is just going to take off and then you're gonna be like, eh, I'll sign up for a meet. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'll just ride the wave and take that if, if, and when it happens. And if it doesn't, you know, that's fine too. I'll pick something yeah. else to do. Dude, <laughs> but Claire, Claire is, she's, she's freakishly strong right now. Like just, I think I saw uh, her pull like 480 or something like that. Is that right? Somewhere. In that yeah. Range? Yeah. Two, two seventeen five. So four seventy nine or whatever, which yeah. is, yeah. And squatted a PR oh. and, um, it's coming back from a shoulder injury, but I expect her to match her bench PR and, you know, powerlifting is one of those weird deals. It's like the, the name of the game in the sport is maximizing your total on a given day. Right. So like, yes, you can train your butt off and everything's going your way. But if on that one particular day during those hours of competition, if you're just, you know, off a little bit, the sport itself is maximizing your total with the given performance you have. And so I, while I'm hopeful that she just crushes it all time PRs, you know, whatever, and sets a PR total and, and, you know, wins going away. I still, I got some nerves about, you know, managing that. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I think all competitive sport really. I mean, I had plenty of days in, in swimming where I was like in great shape and prepped and stuff. And for whatever reason on a given day, maybe a certain time wasn't there. I think that, you know, there may be a case to be made that in powerlifting, it's a little bit more finicky than some other sports like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the performance on a competition day at a competition time with competitors around you is definitely a different beast than, than uh, run of the mill training for, for most sports, I guess. Yeah. I had thought going to Grand Cayman, I'm like, oh, tropical vacation, kind of like working vacation. It'll be great. And then I looked at the weather. It's going to be nineties just all week. I'm just going to be getting brutalized by the heat. So maybe that's why they're holding the powerlifting championships <laughs> and grand came in in August, but, uh, no, it'll be fun. So we'll, I'll report back, uh, next week, but this week we're doing a research review. If you've never joined us on a research review, basically what we do is studies that are published, uh, either like within the last few weeks or last few months that we've come across that are interesting or we find interesting. We review them for you. Some of these get a lot of play uh, by mainstream media or by other outlets, and we feel like we need to address them. Others are just more interesting, and we kind of just do everything in between. So we'll pop into that shortly. Before we do, uh, we do have a few announcements. Announcement number one, we alluded to this last 
podcast, our super seminar is coming up. It's the best of both worlds from our pain and rehab seminar and our health and performance seminar. We're jamming them together, including some new information. So we'll have the pain and rehab team. We'll have our, uh, you know, normal health performance uh, coaches, including myself, Dr. Baraki, Tom Capitelli, Leah Lutz. Uh, will all be in attendance. And so you get to lift, you get to learn, you get to hang out. And that's in LA in September. So check that out in the description below. We'll also be at Untamed Strength in Sacramento in October. And then uh, we'll be in Sydney uh, and Perth, Australia in January. I realize that we're a little West Coast heavy right now. Yeah. But, you know, the original <laughs> plan, the original plan was not was to just do a pain and rehab seminar, but we kind of flipped the script on that. So don't worry the rest of the country. We'll, we'll get to you. We'll come over there. Uh, also, all of our supplements are in stock, available uh, right now for purchase, and that's going to come up later. We're going to talk about supplement contamination yet again, and this time with some interesting botanical ingredients, really drive the point home about why you should care about what you're taking. Um, but yeah, if you uh, are a person who takes supplements, this podcast will be useful for you, and then you might be interested in our supplements, which are on the website. And all of our shirts are back in stock. We've got a new design coming out. <clears throat> The uh, ma'am, this is a Wendy's tea is going to be launching pretty soon. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing that you were doing. People are like, where does this come from? I'm like, this is a meme. It gained notoriety like a few years ago. And I've just been saying it. It's like a catchphrase. I think it's funny. And, uh, you know, being the owner of a company, you get to do stuff like that. You know, if I can get you to sign a contract where I get to use like your face on a t-shirt, sure. we're going to do, yeah. we'll do that too. Maybe with your eyes popping out <laughs> now that you've been memefied. All right. I don't, let's go. You know, do you know how many people like across, as CrossFit would say, broad time and modal domains would buy a shirt with your face on it now? Well, that maybe we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could do one. Uh, remember how like the, the, the uh, duotone thing that Obama had for his yeah. like, yeah, yes, we can. You hope, yeah, we could just do that with your face, <laughs> but just with your eyeballs like bulging out. We'll see how realistic we can get. All right, so let's pop into this week's podcast. The first paper we're going to talk about is Exercise Training and Resting Blood Pressure, a Large-Scale Pairwise and Network Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. This was published in the July 2023 uh, uh, journal of BMJ. I think it's still like it just came out in print, but it had been online, I think, for just uh, about two or three weeks now. Um, just before we get in, Austin, now obviously you're dealing with hospitalized patients, and so you don't really have a ton of lifestyle uh, sort of you know communication there. But in general, when you think about the effect of exercise on blood pressure, like what's your sort of elevator elevator pitch that you might give to patients should you work in like a primary care clinic? Yeah, I mean, I, and I do address this certainly with some of the telemedicine work that I do and from a, more of a primary care standpoint. And, and I would say that on average, I expect that just about any form of exercise will tend to have a beneficial effect on people's resting blood pressure. But I also caveat that by saying that not all high blood pressure is the same. I think that people, you know, it, it's actually pretty complicated. And just having a blood pressure measurement, you get these two numbers and you think that like, you know, say two different people have a blood pressure of 140 over 90, you think that they have like effectively the same thing going on, but they could have reached that high blood pressure, that high resting blood pressure measurement through different mechanisms. And those mechanisms may be more or less, um, I don't know if susceptible is the right word to exercise based modification. In other words, one person may have a resting blood pressure in that range or potentially even higher that is quite responsive to, you know, exercise, whereas the other person may have a different mechanism of their high blood pressure that is relatively resistant to the effects of exercise. And I think this is important to point out just up front because, I mean, I've had patients um, that I've dealt with 
and done consultations with and things like that um, from a primary care standpoint who are doing, you know, they're working their butts off. They're doing actually going above and beyond just about anybody that I've ever seen and may not be able to get their blood pressure all the way down to quote unquote normal. And that's a conversation that we have to have that maybe your mechanism of high blood pressure is one that's not necessarily as kind of amenable to these kind of modifications. So on average, I set the expectation that I would expect it to improve people's blood pressure with the caveat that there's a fair amount of variability in people's responses based on their specific kind of type and mechanism of high blood pressure. Yeah, it kind of matters how you got there mm-hmm. as far as, yeah, how susceptible. I like that to uh, to change it is. Um, for example, if somebody's got high blood pressure from sleep apnea, you know, exercise may mediate that a little bit, but we would not expect as big of a result as if somebody just had, uh, you know, blood pressure uh, elevation due to an increase in body weight over time, for example. Yep. But, you know, and every, there are going to be inter, inter-individual variances in how people respond, just like there is to exercise. In any case, let's just give the listeners a little background here on high blood pressure. So normal blood pressure, uh, as of as recent, I believe t- 2017, normal blood pressure is less than 120 millimeters of mercury. That's the top number. It's called systolic blood pressure. It's blood pressure measured when the heart is actively beating over 80 millimeters of mercury. That's diastolic blood pressure. That's the bottom number. That is blood pressure, the blood pressure reading taken when the heart is filling with blood or relaxing. So less than 120 over 80. Uh, prior to that, yeah, it seemed like if you were under 130 or even in the 130s, most you know docs would be like, eh, it's probably fine. Uh, but that has uh, subsequently changed. And, and the reason why is because we know that there are health benefits to be had with achieving this quote unquote normal blood pressure, that if your blood pressure is elevated above that 120, and certainly above 130, that reducing it to normal will improve outcomes. So for example, a, a 10 millimeter of mercury reduction in systolic blood pressure, that's a top number again, or a five millimeter reduction in diastolic blood pressure is associated with significant reductions in major heart events by about 20%, uh, all-cause mortality by 10 to 15%, stroke by 35%, coronary events by 20%, and heart failure by 40%. And I believe that's if your blood pressure is like 140 or above. Um, so obviously the higher it is, the more risky things get, but lowering blood pressure towards goal to goal, uh, is important. Um, as far as like how many people this affects, it's a lot. I believe the latest statistics I've seen in the United States, something like 120 million adults, nearly half of adults in the United States have, uh, high blood pressure. So above 130 millimeters of mercury, uh, systolic blood pressure or greater than 80 millimeters of mercury, uh, diastolic blood pressure, or are taking a medication to treat their high blood pressure. Of that proportion, that half of the population approximately who has high blood pressure, only a quarter of them are adequately controlled, meaning that they're to their blood pressure goal. And the average blood pressure in those who aren't adequately controlled is 140 millimeters of mercury systolic, which uh, again is high. So, I, you know, when we went to medical school, uh, I believe at the time, the, like the normal range was, you know, it was less than 130. You know, ideally we want you to be 120 over 80, but if you're 120s to 130s, eh. That's probably fine, but that has subsequently changed. And I think that's just, again, uh, more as more and more data has emerged on actually like treating people or managing lifestyle behaviors to get them their blood pressure closer to that 120 over 80, we've seen increased benefits. Uh, but that was like a pretty landmark paper or position uh, stand that came out by the American Heart Association in 2017, where like, again, millions of Americans who subsequently were previously rather told that they were okay 
now it's like, eh, we should probably do something about this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the the history of, and we're not going to go through an entire history of like high blood pressure, hypertension from a clinical standpoint, but I mean, I think the general trend kind of around the 1940s, 1950s is when kind of medicines became available that were more well tolerated and less toxic than some of the stuff that had been used pre- prior to that. And mm-hmm. so people with the highest of high blood pressures, you know, when treated with those things had dramatic reductions in their cardiovascular risk. And that's not surprising. The people who have the worst high blood pressure, they stand to benefit the most. And then I think what we have observed over subsequent decades, all the way up through you're right. When we were going through training, I mean, I was initially, you know, in, in residency treating people mainly for high blood pressure when it got over 140, over 90 was, was the general guideline with some exceptions for people who had had like a history of stroke or, you know, certain other conditions that would make you tighten it up even more. But I think that what we've seen is that basically the lower you can get the resting blood pressure within within reason, the lower that risk. Of course, if you get it down, you know, lower and lower and lower, the the marginal benefit you get is not as huge as it is mm-hmm. when you go from like 180 over 110 down to 150 over 100, down to 120 over 80, down to 110 over 60 or something like that. The, the, the clinical benefit you get diminishes, but it's still, there is detectable, you know, improvements in risk with all of those. It just tends to diminish over time. And then of course, the lower you go, if you're getting there by means of the use of medications, then the potential for side effects and things like that increases. And so that's kind of the the trade-off that we're all trying to balance in practice is how do we get people down to the lowest, you know, resting blood pressure within reason that's not leading to complications and side effects and falls and and, and things like that with people. Did you ever hear this? I, I remember it was during my longitudinal clerkship in medical school. The My preceptor was like, yeah, it used to be that we thought that systolic blood pressure was just 100 plus your age. And that was normal. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> How, who came up with that? Just like <laughs> they just looked at the number and they're like, well, that's about right. Yeah, we'll yeah. do that. <laughs> uh, in any case, we have some pretty good data on how exercise actually affects blood pressure. And so this is just for like a, this is where we're starting from before we discuss this paper. Um, So exercise has a dramatic effect on resting blood pressure in individuals who have elevated blood pressure or are individuals with hypertension. And we don't really need to tease out the details between those two sort of words, but just above the normal sort of blood pressure. And that's different than talking about how exercise affects normotensive people or people with normal blood pressure. So this particular study was from Nacy et al. Um, It's published in December of 2018 in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. It was a meta-analysis of 391 randomized controlled trials. Half of them, approximately 197 studies, evaluated how exercise affected blood pressure. And the other half, uh, approximately 194 studies, evaluated how medications affected those with high blood pressure. And so in folks with normal blood pressure, the combined, the uh, effects of blood pressure, uh, exercise on blood pressure was as follows. Resistance training lowered blood pressure by about four millimeters of mercury. So that's systolic blood pressure, that top number. Uh, Aerobic training lowered blood pressure by about 4.8 millimeters of mercury. Uh, Isometric training uh, decreased blood pressure by about 5.6 millimeters of mercury and combined aerobic and resistance training, uh, reduced blood pressure by about six and a half. And so when you hear those numbers, you're like, eh, it's not a huge drop, particularly if you're thinking about somebody who's got a blood pressure of like 150 over 90, you're like, really four, five, eh, it's not, not so much. But again, 
that data uh, that I just uh, reflected was just on people with normal blood pressure. And so, yes, exercise will lower blood pressure in those who do not have high blood pressure and those with normal blood pressures. But if you just restrict that analysis, and the authors did that in this study, to individuals with high blood pressure, and this particular group had blood pressure higher than 140 millimeters of mercury, there's a much more dramatic effect of exercise on resting blood pressure. So aerobic training lowered blood pressure by about 8.6 millimeters of mercury. Resistance training lowered blood pressure by about 7.8 millimeters of mercury. Combining them to, together decreased blood pressure by about 13.5 millimeters of mercury, whereas medications in that same group lowered blood pressure by about 9 millimeters of mercury. The average uh, blood pressure, again, in this a sort of hypertensive group was about 150. And in that uh, in you know particular analysis, yeah, exercise was a little more effective than uh, medications for lowering blood pressure. And so that's kind of where we're starting this conversation from. Um, and this latest meta-analysis came to some different conclusions and there are reasons why. Uh, the other part of this uh, meta-analysis that just got published a few weeks ago um, that we're talking about, they make these strong recommendations that the current guidelines need to be revised and revamped because they don't accurately reflect all this new data that's come out about exercise and blood pressure. So just briefly, those recommendations, uh, the first one is the 2017 American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association guidelines uh, for blood pressure management. They recommend increased physical activity with structured exercise. That's a direct quote from the paper. Uh, and then they list data on an inclusion of different types of exercise, like 90 to 150 minutes per week of aerobic exercise, 90 to 150 minutes per week of resistance training. They give like specific recommendations, actually, like, oh, yeah, use 50 to 80 percent of your one RM, do six exercises for three sets of 10. And they also even list data on isometric exercise. And then they link to the current physical activity guidelines. And so all told, I'm like, eh, that's fine. Although I don't think that anyone's actually reading these, that particular set of guidelines for like <laughs> exercise recommendations in folks with high blood pressure. Yeah. But I mean, the guidelines, those, those particular recommendations could certainly be a lot worse. Like I'm down with those. <laughs> if people so, would yeah. do those, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and then the other guideline that they are really harping on is the 2018 European Society of Cardiologists. Those guidelines recommend that regular exercise, among other lifestyle changes, need to be undertaken by those individuals with elevated or high blood pressure. They specifically state that endurance training, but not other types of training, reduce blood pressure more in individuals with hypertension, um, which I just told you guys is not necessarily the case. So maybe that could use some updating. Uh, they recommend that individuals with hypertension should be advised to participate in at least 30 minutes of moderate intensity dynamic aerobic exercise, like walking, jogging, cycling, or swimming uh, on five to seven days per week, and that they should also perform resistance training two to three days per week. Uh, and then for additional benefit, uh, a gradual increase in aerobic physical activity up to 300 minutes uh, per week of moderate intensity aerobic activity or 150 minutes per week of vigorous intensity aerobic ac uh, activity uh, should be the goal. And again, I don't really hate those recommendations. I think if anything I disagree with would just be like this explicit statement that endurance training is better than resistance training. It's like, if you just deleted that, I'd be like, yeah, these seem like fine to the extent that people are like, again, reading these for exercise guidelines. 
Yeah, I would feel better that, um, you know, in more, there are, there exist out there like specialized hypertension clinics. And those are places where people get referred if for whatever reason, maybe they have more difficult to control blood pressure in the outpatient setting. And I think that it is more likely that some of these things are getting addressed more in kind of these specialized hypertension clinics. And I feel less confident that they are getting routinely addressed in general primary care clinics, just from having experienced many of those and, and, and kind of going through many of those places and seeing how, how things get done. And in some ways it is sort of their fault. And in some ways it's, I don't blame them at the same time. And it, you know, uh, in other ways when they're just completely swamped with, you know, tons of patients every day and relatively short appointment times, really getting into the nitty gritty on like behavior change aspects and, and recommending this stuff. Cause it's more than just telling somebody to do this. Um, it can get quite difficult to effectively, you know, facilitate the level of behavior change that may be necessary for some people to work towards or, uh, to, to work towards achieving or exceeding some of these guidelines. But, um, definitely something that I think is, is underemphasized in the context of routine hypertension management out there in practice. Yeah, I would agree. Although I will say to the, I will say to the, uh, American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology's credit, they do link in their guidelines to this behemoth of a paper on behavior change strategies that have been shown to work with respect to lifestyle modification. It is pretty good. It's just lengthy. And again, the amount of people that are accessing the original paper, like the original guidelines and then reading down far enough to get to the like behavior change strategies that you can use in the clinic. <laughs> it's probably pretty low. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the stuff is to, 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 you know, echo what you're saying, the stuff is there. And, and this is also somewhat amusing, but important to point out because a lot of people will say things like that. The American heart association is, you know, bought out by whoever and is just trying to push meds on people. And it's like, well, blood pressure meds are ridiculously inexpensive. So that's not really the case. And that, to, the, to the argument sometimes that is made that they're not, you know, emphasizing lifestyle measures and stuff like that. If you just look up this, you know, initiative that they have called Life's Essential 8, uh, it is very consistent with best evidence on <laughs> many of these topics. Um, and so the AHA Life's Essential 8 touches on basically all of the major things that we often recommend from a lifestyle standpoint for managing cardiovascular risk as well. And they're all lifestyle factors. So... You know, yeah. they do that too. <laughs> big, big lifestyle shills. Yeah. Okay. So this particular study, again, this uh, July 2023 paper, a new meta-analysis of 270 randomized controlled trials on exercise and blood pressure. Uh, yeah. So it was 270 randomized controlled trials, over 15,000 subjects. Uh, about half of those were controls. Um, all protocols were separated into aerobic training, resistance training, combined resistance training, and aerobic training high intensity interval training, and then isometric exercise. They went into like excruciating detail on isometric exercise, like describing the type, how they were performed. So for example, most isometric protocols in this particular uh, meta-analysis and, and the particular trials that it included uh, incorporated four sets of two minute contractions with one to four minute rests three times per week. Uh, if they did hand grip isometric training, they started out at 30% of their max voluntary contraction. If they were doing an isometric wall sit or leg extension, they were uh, each performed at like 95% of the individual's peak heart rate. And so for the first set, it was supposed to be RP three and a half to 4.5. And then for the fourth set should be RP eight to nine, although they don't actually define what that was. And I kind of went into some of the papers to look for like, how did they define RPE? And I couldn't find it. So it doesn't mean it's not there. It's just, I did a 
pretty decent dive into the studies that they included. And I was like, how do they have so much detail and isometric exercise yet? No, no, like similar level of detail for the resistance training protocols, mm-hmm. for example, which yeah. could be wildly different. Some could be like, you know, resistance band based. Others could be body weight based. Others could be machine based. Others could be, you know, free weight based at different intensities and different volumes. It's all sorts. Of, but like, where's the discussion of that? Anyway, we'll save the criticism for later, but that's kind of giving you guys a lay of the land. Overall, they measured a bunch of different effects. So uh, basically, if the intervention, the exercise in this case, caused a change in blood pressure, they call that an effect. And so to give you guys a sort of sense of, you know, the proportion of effects that were measured here, there was 182 effects measured from aerobic training, 57 effects measured uh, measured from resistance training, 46 effects measured from combining aerobic and resistance training, and then 24 effects measured from isometric training. And that's going to come back a little bit later. Uh, they defined normotentive or normal blood pressure as less than 130 over 85, which is not true. Uh, they also defined pre-hypertension, which is a term that has been not only falling out of favor, but also like advocated against uh, by many organizations. They define that as uh, blood pressure of 130 to 139 over 85 to 89, which again, we don't really use this pre-hypertensive sort of phrasing or nomenclature anymore. And then they defined high blood pressure or hypertension as the individuals with blood pressures uh, greater than 140 over 90. So already just right off the bat, I'm like, this was written in 2023. Why are we using these terms? Yeah. These are just the old definitions that, you know, we, we used. 10 years ago. Look, if you're going to hype, if you're going to harp on <laughs> guidelines for not including the most recent data, you better have your definitions updated, but yeah. <laughs> you know, that's for another podcast. All right. So the results of this particular meta-analysis, they showed that aerobic training re- reduced systolic blood pressure. That's the top number again, uh, on average by about four and a half millimeters of mercury. Interestingly, um, it was lower for walking based interventions about two and a half or 2.85 millimeters of mercury and highest for cycling and running about 6.88 for each, uh, resistance training reduced systolic blood pressure by about four and a half. Uh, but again, they did not like separate that out based on like, was it free weights? Was it machines? Was it resistance bands? Was it body weight? They didn't even try there or even training volume, anything. Uh, and then isometric exercise reduced systolic blood pressure by 8.2 and diastolic blood pressure by about four, um, which, you know, was large, the largest numbers they saw of any exercise intervention. And that'll be important later. So hang on to that little factoid. Uh, the interesting thing I saw that they did report, but ultimately didn't comment any further on was that the effective exercise on resting blood pressure was moderated by the initial blood pressure of the group or of the individual. And they found a relationship uh, that for every one millimeters of mercury uh, increase in the initial blood pressure, that there was a 0.1 millimeter of mercury greater drop. So basically, that's a fancy way of saying the higher the people's resting blood pressure was initially, the greater the drop they tended to see. And so if you had different groups that had different uh, initial blood pressures, you would expect different results. Those with higher blood pressures, you would expect a greater response in general. And those with lower blood pressures, you would expect a slightly decreased response. And so my main criticism of this meta-analysis, because it got posted to our forum, is that they did not do any subgroup analysis for individuals only with high blood pressure. 
And and so if you're going to comment that the effect is mediated by people's initial blood pressure, you got to control for that. I don't particularly care what happens to nor- people with normal blood pressure <laughs> in response to exercise, unless it's some unique finding like, hey, look, this particular type of exercise happens to increase resting blood pressure, uh, which we haven't seen in the literature yet outside of some you know very unique responses that are effectively a statistical error. But it's like what, you, what this – RCT or meta-analysis of RCTs could have done is said, hey, we just looked at individuals with high blood pressure and here are the effects of the different types of exercise. That would have been a cool study that would have like maybe given us some insight into the optimal training protocol for individuals with high blood pressure. Um, they also had little to no other data on important factors that you would actually care about because while we do care about blood pressure in and of itself, we recognize blood pressure as this constellation is one of many constellation of factors that contributes to like heart disease risk. So you'd want to know like, was there a differential effect on individuals waist circumference on their BMI on their VO two max on a sit to stand test on muscle mass or strength on cholesterol, like anything else, right. That gives you a better insight into, into like what you should be telling patients to do. It didn't respond report any of that. And so there might be a differential effect that actually changes what you do. So for example, if you just looked at this meta-analysis and you're like, look, isometric exercise had this monster effect comparatively to other training modes, you know, 8.2 compared to 4.4 for aerobic training, we should have people do isometrics. It's like, yeah, but if you look at other data on isometrics, it does worse with respect to other outcomes that we would care about. Like Reducing resting heart rate, for example, or reducing waist circumference or, you know, moderating weight regain, things of that nature, improvements in muscle strength and dynamic tasks. And so you're like, okay, so I'm not really sure what to do with this, despite, you know, I'm sure this took a lot of work and time and effort to not only collect all the data, but, you know, collate it, write it up, et cetera. But it's like, could have just done a little bit extra, I feel like. Yeah, I think and that's then, a particularly good point because, you know, the conclusions are what, what somebody who's just looking at this study in isolation might think is that this patient who I have in front of me who has high blood pressure is best served doing isometrics. It's like, well, there's a decent chance that they also have other conditions because many people who have high blood pressure also have other stuff going on. And um, they may benefit from other forms of activity for all of their other conditions or just in general to an equivalent or even greater extent. And so kind of myopically looking at the blood pressure difference as the only outcome of interest and translating this study potentially inappropriately to that patient um, who, who, who may have other issues going on that need to be addressed potentially through, through exercise, you know, type interventions. Um, you may be kind of missing the, the missing the forest for the trees there, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And then the last, their last point about, you know, oh, the guidelines need to be updated. I mean, I agree as far as like, the explicitness and like visibility of, you know, exercise related recommendations, like, Hey, this thing needs to be front and center. Like, yes, people with high blood pressure need to exercise. And I would maybe spend a little bit of time talking about like, or assaging, you know, the potential risks of exercise on blood pressure, because that is, you know, an assumed thing like, Oh, if you exercise and exercise causes your blood pressure to increase somebody with high blood pressure, what if they have a more, you know, dynamic response to that and their blood pressure goes way up is that dangerous like are they at higher risk of you know having a high blood pressure related you know uh tragedy or something um that would be useful and then like explicit sort of discussion of and here are the types of exercise and the actual prescriptions that we would recommend for somebody who's 
currently insufficiently active. And additionally, here are links to how to deliver that information in order to get behavioral change to occur. Like that would all be useful as far as updated guidelines from the AHA, ACC, the ESC, et cetera. But like, I don't know that much substance actually needs to change within the guidelines outside of maybe eliminating the little one sentence about, hey, endurance exercise is better. And it's like, Oh, okay. Outside of that, like, I don't know that you guys are necessarily wrong. It's just more of like, we've omitted some really important or what I consider to be important things. Um, take home from me that exercise provides direct and indirect benefit to mortality, heart disease risk and quality of life directly. Yeah. It can lower blood pressure and we know it can have a large effect, particularly on folks with high blood pressure. Indirectly, it does a bunch of other cool things like reduce resting heart rate, improve functional scores, uh, improve uh, other metrics uh, associated with this maybe composite risk of like bad health outcomes. So like you're better at dealing uh, with blood sugar excursions. You're able to keep that on a, a tighter, tighter range. It does good things for your cholesterol, does good things for effectively every system in the body. So indirectly, it can improve this sort of composite risk score, if you will. Um, also, my takeaway is that exercise reduces resting blood pressure in a dose-dependent manner with respect to training volume. We saw that in the NACI uh, meta-analysis of the 391 studies, basically the more exercise you do, the more blood, your blood pressure is going to go down, particularly if you have high blood pressure to start, um, the higher the initial blood pressure, the more likely it is to work and the more dramatic the effects usually are. But as Austin stated at the beginning, it kind of matters how you got that high blood pressure. If you had somebody who's taken a medication that is known to raise their blood pressure, I don't know that exercise is going to really touch that, at least not that much. Uh, But so again, it matters how you got there. Uh, I will say that I think isometric exercise is an option, likely one that's underappreciated, particularly for folks where the isometric exercise is more accessible for them, meaning they can do it at home or they have limited mobility. And these types of exercises are like just something they can do versus other types of forms that most of our listeners probably engage in. So, you know, they can't go to a gym or they can't get on machines or they can't do lift free weights or whatever, for whatever reason. It's like, yeah, isometric exercise, that's some exercise and we should be promoting that too. But I don't know that I would be promoting isometric exercise to the exclusion of other types like, oh, this is the best kind. Um, I just hope that in the future, there are like direct comparisons of individuals with elevated blood pressure or hypertension um, and different types of exercise because that would really give us, again, maybe some more insight to you know what, if any, type of exercise is the best for lowering blood pressure. Although I suspect there's probably not going to be one type. What do you think, Austin? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's going to be one type and I think there's going to be variable responses. And I think that even in that situation, there's still going to be justifiable reasons to recommend people working towards the physical activity guidelines. (laughs) And so I don't like, in other words, I don't see um, many clinical situations uh, where the type of exercise that I would recommend for a patient um, for any particular medical condition wildly deviates from what would otherwise be recommended from the general physical activity guideline standpoint. You know what I mean? Um, And so, you know, that's kind of what I expect. Like at at this point, you know, we've talked before about the physical activity guidelines and how they've in general been mostly reinforced over the decades rather than just like radically overhauled in the face of new evidence. And so, you know, the more of that happens, I think the less likely they are to just get, you know, again, overturned for any particular medical condition, even though some of this may be kind of interesting on an, 
you know, case by case level or on an academic basis, or maybe for like your most difficult to control high blood pressure cases, maybe if there is some evidence of superiority for one or another, you might lean into that a little bit more, but I still think that that's going to be unlikely. Um, and, and ultimately for me kind of to echo what I mentioned at the beginning is that exercise is great and we recommend it for people in this situation, but there's always many other things to think about. And so when I do consultations with people relating to their blood pressure or all of the things that I wrote about in our two-part blood pressure article series on the website, there's a ton of things that I'm thinking about, asking about, assessing kind of upfront that might be dietary factors, what their sleep is like. I mean, sleep restriction can pretty easily raise people's resting blood pressure, even if they don't have, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, having sleep apnea makes it even worse. If they drink more, you know, alcohol than is advisable, um, which is applies to probably many more people out there than, um, than you think, or many people even listening to this podcast probably consume more alcohol than they should. Um, and that can contribute to high blood pressure, tobacco, drug use, and then there's tons of other medical conditions that need to be evaluated um, in in patients who have high blood pressure related to their you know kidney disease, thyroid uh, thyroid disease, um, aldosteronism is another condition that is woefully underdiagnosed as a cause of you know high blood pressure that would not be particularly responsive to exercise. And so, just to reiterate that this is complicated and probably needs some consultation with somebody who knows what they're doing rather than just exercising as hard as you can and, and not making progress if you're somebody who's not responding great to that intervention. <laughs> Do you ever think when you were going through medical training, learning about hyperaldosteronism, that it would be as big of an issue as you currently <laughs> recognize it to be? Yeah, I, I both thought it was going to be less of an issue and that it would be easier to diagnose. And so uh, both of those things turned out to be false. And so there are even some folks out there who uh, are, you know, start, in the past few years, I've seen some calls advising that pretty much everybody who has a new diagnosis of high blood pressure should probably get screened. And I don't have a firm position on that quite yet, but I definitely, uh, I, I, I would bet that I test for it more often than many of my colleagues do. I'll say that. <laughs> It's uh yeah I, I was I can't remember if I was listening to a comedian or if I was looking at a, a a gif or a meme or something online and it was like I really thought that during adulthood quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem than it is. <laughs> and that's how, how I feel about aldosteronism <laughs> yeah that's how I feel about aldosteronism uh, yeah all right so that's a wrap on uh, the first paper of three that we're addressing this particular week all the links uh, to the different studies we discussed are in the description below for further reading this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp after going to the gym what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day for me I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature maybe both whether we're talking about training a dietary change or just life the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. All right, paper number two. This paper is titled Presence and Quantity of Botanical Ingredients with Purported Performance Enhancing Properties in Sports Supplements. This is by Cohen et al. This was published July 17th, 2023 in, the, uh, in JAMA. Um, okay, so let's talk about some background information. Uh, dietary supplement is defined by law 
as a product taken by mouth that contains a dietary ingredient such as vitamins, minerals, botanicals, amino acids, and enzymes that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, are not intended to treat or prevent disease. Approximately 75% of Americans reported taking dietary supplements in the previous year, and it contributes to an over $35 billion a year supplement market. In the United States, dietary supplements are classified as food and are therefore not subject to pre-market testing by the FDA. They are still regulated by the FDA via post-market surveillance. Uh, So much of the regulation takes place after the product has come to market. The FDA can issue a recall and take harmful supplements off the market if it does have the potential to cause adverse effects. As far as contamination risk, what we currently understand, um, in an effort to limit supplement contamination, uh, also verify accuracy of labeling and set standards for monitoring and reporting adverse events associated with supplement use, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, the DSHEA of 1994, gave the FDA authority to establish good manufacturing practices. A 2013 FDA report showed that approximately 70% of supplement manufacturers were in violation of these good manufacturing practices, and additionally, 28% failed to even register with the FDA. Based on present data, it looks like 20% at least of all dietary supplements uh, available for purchase are likely contaminated, and about 30 to 50% are incorrectly labeled, though these are likely a significant underestimation due to underreporting, lack of research, and lack of resources to sort of get that good data. Uh, the most common niches that are either contaminated or incorrectly labeled uh, are in the muscle building, sexual enhancement, and weight loss sort of divisions of dietary supplements. So let's take a dive into this study. This study looked at 63 different products that were purchased online to see how accurate their labels were for ingredients and quantity thereof with respect to plant-sourced ingredients claimed to provide either stimulants or anabolic effects. The ingredients being tested for were Rawolfia vomitoria, which, by the way, what a terrible terrible name. name. (laughs) Vomitoria. Okay. Yeah, I know. Uh, apparently that contains yohimbine. We do get questions about yohimbine, like, does it work? Uh, and the answer to that is no. But in any case, this is a particular plant-based ingredient, this raw wolfia vomitoria that they were testing for. The second ingredient that they were testing for was methylliberine, which is a caffeine-like analog. Uh, they were also testing for the stimulant uh, halostatine, a plant steroid called tricosterone, uh, and a stimulant called octopamine. Uh, again, guys, just really workshop these names before you publish them because <laughs> I'm going to look up the I'm going to look up like the chemical structure of octopamine and see if there's something that can explain that weird name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so the results of this study, so they basically bought 63 of these different supplements, looked for these different ingredients, and if they were in there, they looked for hey, well, how much of it's in there. So 57 of the 63 products listed at least one of these different ingredients. So they, the subsequent analysis only pertains to those 57 products because I guess they bought like six of them that maybe on their ad copy on the website they bought them from like had these listed. But then when they got the supplement, they're like, oh, it's not even on the label. So mm, kick them out. So the rest of the study kind of uh, applies to just those 57 products. Of those 57, 23 or half did not have detectable amounts of the labeled ingredient. So no detectable amount, half of them, okay? Of those with detectable levels, the quantity ranged from 0.02% up to 334% of the stated quantity, which, holy crap. (laughs) I guess, okay, would you rather, would you rather get 0.02% 
of what you know you thought you were getting or 334 <laughs> yeah i, I had err on the 0.02 side knowing that most some of these are liver toxic but <laughs> yeah yeah i don't i definitely don't want the 334 one <laughs> uh of the 57 only six or 11 percent contained the ingredient within 10 percent of the labeled quantity uh seven of the 57 so 12 percent were found to contain at least one fda prohibited ingredient such as one four dmaa that's the stuff from jacked 3d which is an amphetamine derivative uh and has been associated with elevated blood pressure heart arrhythmias heart attacks seizures etc and that's why it's pulled off the market uh one uh had uh, deterinol, which was has been banned due to cardiac arrest risk, which is a fancy way of saying a heart attack. Uh, <clears throat> another ingredient that was found that's been banned by the FDA was is called octadine. Uh, this was originally marketed as a bronchitis treatment. It was pulled from the market. Uh, it has unknown safety data because there's no placebo-controlled trials on safety uh the safety profile of this. Side effects include high blood pressure, shortness of breath, and hyperthermia, which uh 10 out of 10 would not recommend hyperthermia. Uh, another FDA prohibited ingredient that was found in these supplements is called oxaliferine, which is a stimulant related to ephedrine. It's also prohibited by WADA. And there was a number of very public high profile doping cases, such as the Jamaican runners, Asafa Powell and Sharon Simpson. Um, this is a cardiac stimulant from the 1930s. It was later marketed as a cough suppressant. But yeah, it's banned by WADA. This was found um, also in a few of the supplements. And the last one that was banned by the FDA, uh, but that was also found in these supplements purchased online, is called Umber, uh, Umberacetam, which uh, is promoted as a nootropic. Uh, there's only rat studies on this. It's basically out of Russia. Well, the only sort of actual literature on this is out of Russia. And that's where it's been imported from. There's no safety data on it. And the FDA considers it uh, effectively one of the racetam family substances, which are, you know, pharmaceuticals that need to be prescribed for specific indications. Uh, and so being that there's no application for this new pharmaceutical, this is effectively a, a pharmaceutical grade medication that's People are getting from, you know, a Russian importer and uh, there's, there's some, and there's some unknown issues. quantities <laughs> in unknown quantities. And then like just the, the racetam family, like those are, there's a, the side effect profile of those particular medications are not great either. And so <laughs> would not recommend just freebasing <laughs> any one of those medications just, just for funsies. So as far as like what this study kind of showed to me, 89% of the supplement labels in this particular study did not accurately declare the ingredients found in the products. Either they weren't in there in the right amounts or it had extra stuff in there. So only 11% were like even kind of accurate. Uh, the majority of these were marketed as pre-workout uh, sort of supplements or muscle building supplements or nootropics. Uh, and I'm just like, look, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a supplement user, these types of companies are marketing like directly to you. They're like, oh, you need a new pre-workout. Oh, you want to build more muscle. Oh, you want to be smarter and have, you know, better brain function, better brain health throughout the day. Take one of these supplements. And it's like, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know because again, the, the rates of contamination or incorrect labeling just in the supplement industry as it stands right now is super high. And in particular, these sort of niches. And I'm like, why are you taking this? Is the 1% potential benefit, if, if it even exists, worth that sort of risk? And my resounding answer is no to that. And in fact, 
I just think if you're taking supplements, if you're a supplement user, you have to, the first thing you have to do is make sure that they are strongly supported by scientific evidence for actually working, meaning that they have data in humans showing benefit for outcomes that you care about. So for example, you don't care that uh, a particular muscle building supplement reduces, you know, creatine phosphokinase, CPK levels or CK levels in the, in the blood. You don't care about that because that doesn't affect you. What you care about, does it make you stronger? Does it make you gain more muscle mass? So does it have studies showing that it does something in humans that you care about that by taking it via mouth, it achieves a therapeutic use, a therapeutic level in the blood? And does it have a good safety profile? Are there any safety tests on it thing? And like, if the supplement doesn't meet one or more of those criteria already, you should be like, I'm not taking it. That should be the decision making. But I feel like athletes and and recreational athletes, even when they like hear a buzz about a particular supplement or particular ingredient, they're like, ah, screw all that. I'm just going to take it, send it full send, see what happens. And it's like, I uh, probably would not recommend that. Yeah. And these are many of the same folks who are super, super, super skeptical or like anti-pharma or things like that, where like the regulation and strictness is like extremely high and you know absolutely what you're taking and in what dose and they'll just take anything without really a second thought. And then on top of that, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, kind of biohacker guru types uh, in, in the scene who, if you ask them what they take or look through their recommendations and like compile them, it is a laundry list of supplements. And so then what's even more concerning is to imagine, like you talked about the findings of any one of these supplements that might've been contaminated by multiple things or had wild variation in dosing. And then, you know, people who might be taking, you know, three, five, 10 plus different supplements because of the recommendations to, cause they want to biohack their whatever. And it's just like stacking more and more and more potential, uh, contaminants, uh, interactions and, and, and other potential con- consequences. And as somebody who has seen a fair share of acute liver failure from supplements, it is a horrific thing to witness somebody go through as somebody who, you know, takes one of these things that is contaminated, ends up in liver failure and needs like an emergency liver transplant as like a previously completely healthy person in their like twenties or thirties or something like that. Like I've seen that more than one occasion. Um, and like almost any risk of that to the extent it is avoidable is not worth whatever likely trivial to non-existent benefits you're getting from, you know, most supplements out there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think I would have some rather have somebody take like, let's say a person with normal testosterone levels, since we're just coming off this testosterone series, if they were like, I'm going to take high dose testosterone that I'm getting through a pharmacy or whatever, I'd rather have them take that unnecessarily than screw with any one of these supplements. It's like, look, if if you're in a performance enhancement, just take the drugs, like, you know, just take (laughs) it. Take the yeah. substance that you know what it is and be appropriately <laughs> monitored rather than do neither of those things. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not that we're telling you guys to, to take drugs. But uh, so if you're a supplement user, here's my sort of top three things, or top uh, uh, four things that you need to do to make sure that what you're taking um, is likely to benefit you rather than harm you. One, make sure that somewhere on the label, it's got the GMP stamp of uh, accreditation, like the manufacturer that you purchase and give your hard earned dollar to should at a very minute at the very minimum 
register with the FDA and, you know, be adherent to those good manufacturing practices. And if they did so, they would display that label prominently on their supplement. Also, make sure that the supplement is third-party tested. There are a number of different uh, uh, vendors who will do this. Uh, so NSF is a big one. USP is a big one. Informed for Sport, Informed Consent. That's the company that we use to batch test all of our supplements to make sure there are no adulterants in there, so stuff that you don't want in there, and that what's in the supplement uh, on the label is actually in there in the correct amounts. I mean, at a very, at the very least, you, those two things should be there: uh, GMP label uh, certification and a third-party testing uh, sort of verification. Third thing: make sure there's actually evidence for what you're taking. Like, again, if you if what you're taking is not proven, then already it's like I probably just lean against taking it uh, outside of GMP, outside of third-party testing or whatever. And then the final thing: there should not be a proprietary blend. If there's a proprietary blend, that's a huge red flag that whatever you're taking is bullshit. It like, because there aren't any proprietary blends that are like, hmm, now that is the secret sauce and it's <laughs> going to remain a secret until this uh, proprietary blend thing is, uh, has worn off. No. Uh, so those are my top four things. We did a whole podcast on supplement safety and kind of supplement guidelines. Episode 202. I've linked that in the description below as well. In addition to this paper we discussed and yep, we do sell supplements. Uh, if you're asking me what supplements sh should you take to improve the uh, rate of return from your training interventions, I think we make all the supplements that you would need. And again, there's only two of them. So it's like, how many supplements should I be taking? And I'm like, well, if you don't see it on our website, it's because we don't believe in it. And in, instead of just getting rich and, you know, sleeping on a bed of money, uh, I value our ethics and then also Austin's friendship too much to just completely <laughs> jump the shark <laughs> and sell you stuff that not only doesn't work, but that you don't need. So, um, okay. Moving on to our third and final paper for this week's podcast, episode 235. I'm with Dr. Austin Baraki here on the Barbell Medicine podcast. The third paper is titled free weight and machine-based training are equally effective on strength and hypertrophy, challenging a traditional myth. You know, as much as we harp on titles of papers being either too long or, you know, whatever. This just gives away the plot just right away. <laughs> just like, come on. I think oh. the authors just, they just know that people aren't going to read the whole paper and they're like, we're just going to put it in the title. <laughs> or, or maybe this is like a, this is like a, you know, clickbait to, for, for people who are going to get pissed off reading that title. And then they're like, we're going to read it furiously to try to debunk it or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I would have downloaded it. Unfortunately, it's behind a paywall. So I did, I had to pay for it. I did. <laughs> I, I, I spent the money, so you don't have to. Okay, so let's, let's talk about some background here uh, for this paper. Uh, so muscle is an adaptive tissue that responds to what is repeatedly asked of it. In response to exercise that is programmed appropriately, uh, that means using the correct load, the correct volume, range of motion, proximity to failure, and so on, uh, and is well-suited for the individual's current fitness levels, muscles can improve force production in specific tasks ergo get stronger and increase in size, which is hypertrophy. There is a large overlap between strength and hypertrophy focused training variables. That means a good strength program should likely make somebody's muscles grow and a good hypertrophy program should make somebody's strength improve in the movements that are trained. 
Exercise selection is also an important training variable as it decides what muscles get trained through what range of motion and in what fashion. So like tempo, velocity, uh, things of that nature. One common claim that goes back over half a century is that free weight based training improves strength and hypertrophy more than machine based training. A recent meta-analysis on the topic found that neither strength nor muscle hypertrophy was meaningfully influenced by the resistance training modality used. I, that means free weights versus machines, though there were some issues with exercise selection. So for example, you can't really compare a squat uh, versus a leg press or knee extension because they're different. They train different amount of muscle mass through different ranges of motion, et cetera. Uh, rather, you would like to see a machine-based squat like on a Smith machine versus a free weight squat if you were really just trying to suss out like, are free weights better than machines? Also, problems arose with uh, assessing strength via one rep max using one of the modes trained only by one group. That's not really a fair shake. So if you're comparing free weight squat 1RMs in individuals who train with a free weight squat compared to a leg press, well, that's not really fair to those doing the leg press because, again, strength is specific. As it stands, little to no prior evidence exists on whether the unique characteristics of each type of resistance training so machines or free weights exist. And so this paper set out to assess that claim. So this particular study took 38 trained men. They'd been training for at least two years. They trained three times a week for eight weeks using the squat, the bench press, an inverted row, uh, and seated press for both groups. They matched the intensity, the volume, the s- number of sets, rest periods, etc. So they were doing like this same training program, just one used machines and one used free weights. They randomized the groups so that the number of strong people or less strong people were equivalent. And so basically they tested all their 1RMs before the study started, and then they they ranked them from most strong to least strong and then randomized based on that. They were also advised to consume at least 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight uh, per day, which is a little low, but close enough um, to what we would recommend. Uh, One of the more interesting things, they used Alico barbells and plates here. Now, I guess they're in Spain, so maybe it's easier to get, but I was like, huh? You guys had that comp comp spec equipment. I I looked for pictures in in the paper. I was like, please God don't use like bumpers or some like Olympic bars or whatever. Uh, and I couldn't, there were no pictures in there, but that's a, do you ever watch any of the Paralympic bench pressing stuff? Austin? Yeah. Occasionally. Why do they use Olympic weightlifting bars and bumpers to bench press? Like <laughs> is a Lyco just put it, they got a limit on how much funding they're going to give the Olympics. They're like, Hey, look, we do make this powerlifting specific equipment that would be way better suited for bench press, but you can't have it. It's just like ridiculous watching people bench bumpers on these spinny, floppy barbells. I'm like, stop doing that, guys. <laughs> anyway. I actually don't think I've ever noticed that before. I just looked it up, and yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, if you if you want to be angry Benching about on a something, super spinny weightlifting bar would not be my favorite thing. Uh, Tom and I have arguments about this all the time. He's like, the BNR bar is the greatest barbell that's ever been created, and I'm like, <sighs> it's a little floppy, it's a little spinny for powerlifting. Yeah, but a powerlifting bar is a little stiff and a little uh, static, meaning it doesn't spin for weightlifting. So I get why they had to make the compromise. If there was no compromise, there would be no difference in the barbells. Anyway, that's my take. Tom's not here to defend his, st- his standpoint. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, they also interestingly used velocity at various sessions to make sure that the individuals were adding weight to the bar appropriately. So they wanted to make sure that they were losing about 20% of velocity per set. And so if the individuals were not doing that, they made them add weight, which 
is a method of progression. So, and I feel like that's useful that the authors had the foresight to like know that and then use that in their study protocol. Uh, and then they tested hypertrophy outcomes via ultrasound. So they basically stick an ultrasound on the quads, on the pec major and on the rectus abdominis to see like, Hey, did it get any thicker? Did it grow? Um, they used that. And then they tested the one RM based on the way the groups trained. So for example, those doing a machine-based squat, they tested their one RM on that at the end. And then they tested the one RM on the people squatting with the regular barbell free weight style. Uh, they te- that's how they tested their one RM squat at the end. As far as the results go, the adherence was great between both groups, greater than 95% adherence to all the sessions. Again, it was three times a week for eight weeks. The highest 1RM was seen in the mode or type of exercise that the people trained. So strength is specific. Uh, interestingly, I guess they did some crossover at the end. And they're like, hey, you guys have been doing regular barbell squats for the last eight weeks. Let's have you get on a Smith machine and do a 1RM squat there. Yep. Turns out that improved too mm-hmm. and vice versa. Uh both, imp- both groups improved by about 11% on the mode that they trained. Um, so they got about 11% stronger, but there were no differences between the two different groups, meaning that it's not like the free weight folks got markedly stronger than the machine-based trainers. Um, as far as advantages towards the free weight group, they did see greater improvements in bar velocity. It was about 2%. They actually improved how fast they were moving the bar at uh, uh, submaximal weights, but uh, that was not actually seen uh, in the machine-based group. As far as hypertrophy goes, there was an average Im- increase in uh, ultrasound-measured thickness of the pec major by about 12%, 5% in the quadriceps, and 2% in the rectus abdominis. But again, there were no statistically significant differences between groups. So both the machine group and the free weight group improved hypertrophy but to about the same level. They did this also final analysis of like discomfort level. They asked people like how sore their joints were, I guess, to try to ferret out if there were any differences there. Uh, both types of exercise reduced joint discomfort and there were no statistically significant differences between the groups. So my interpretation here is that both did about the same for strength and hypertrophy. Although there was no like neutral test, that would have been cool if they tested like, I don't know, what would you pick if you had one group of people doing like a machine based Smith machine squat and one group of people doing a regular barbell squat, how would you test their leg strength without giving an advantage to one group or the other? I mean, I guess the easiest thing would be like a leg press. Yeah. I'm thinking something low skill, but then it's like, oh, well that's still a machine. So maybe the machine based people would have an advantage. And then it's like, I don't know if that's true because it's a different (laughs) exercise. Yeah. I, I think something that they that researchers might use, which would be less sort of valid, would be like an isometric leg extension. Like how much weight can you hold on a leg extension for, you know, a few seconds? But it's sure. like, I don't care about that. No so, skill yeah, and it's I, very different. But then, yeah, people who actually train would be like, that's not an outcome I care about. So I'm going to throw this study away and stick to what I believe anyway. So <laughs> you lose, yeah. lose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would think maybe like you could do like a push-up test maybe for like upper body strength. I don't know. I don't really have a good, I don't really have a good answer right off the top of my head, but yeah, I would like, I would have liked to seen a neutral test. Uh, they also did not verify the dietary pattern, which might've been useful just to see like, Hey, who was doing the protein, who wasn't, uh, particularly from the hypertrophy standpoint. And I also would have liked to see the individual data on like how strong did each individual get, how much muscle mass did each individual get and seeing the range reported, uh, rather than just like averages because yeah, for a study of, you know, 38 people, individual subject level data is not uh, too much to ask for, I think. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And it, it would have been nice to see like, well, are the ranges the same? 
for example? Like, is there any sort of difference, you know, is, is the distribution different? And as far as the averages go, um, they also reported only relative strength rather than absolute strength. So I just want to see like how strong these people were. Are we talking about people squatting 550? Are we talking about people that are squatting 300? Not that I think it changes like what I would do in response to this data. I'm just more curious as like, give me the individual data. So as far as my take home on this, strength is specific to what, how you're testing the strength. And so free weights versus machines, that's probably a more important consideration as far as exercise selection goes. If you are testing strength via a free weight exercise, well, you should probably do free weight exercises in training. Um, that should probably make up the big, big chunk of your uh, training sort of program. Uh, if you're going to a powerlifting meet, you're going to have to squat with the bar on your back, free weight situation. You can't just do Smith machine squats all day and hope and just turn up to the meet and pray to God <laughs> that you're good. That's probably not the way to prepare. So from a strength perspective, I do think that exercise selection is very, very important um, based on how you're testing the strength. Hypertrophy is probably less affected by free weights versus machines, uh, provided you're loading the muscle through a relatively large range of motion and getting somewhere near failure. Um, but both just have unique benefits. So for example, free weight training, is mostly ground-based, requires balance, more coordination, et cetera. So that could be useful if you really want to train that. But these those added requirements may make them less attractive in certain cases. So for example, machines can be useful when balance compromises the training intent. So Austin, how many times have you gotten this complaint from like a trainee, you program split squats or Bulgarian split squats or something? And they're like, dude, balance is so tough for me, like whatever, I'm just having trouble completing the reps. They're really lightweight. My legs are nowhere close to getting to failure. And then you're like, well, on the one hand, you could just keep doing these exercises and get better at balance, or you could do them on a Smith machine or some other sort of like yeah. constrained range of motion where it's like, look, we can just blow your legs out like this. We don't have to, we're not really trying to train balance. We can, uh, in this particular context. Yeah. And that really that. depends on the intent of the exercise for that person. So if it's like, you know, muscle, m more muscle, like lower fatigue, muscle isolation for the purpose of hypertrophy, I'd be less likely to use one of those like balance intensive exercises at all. And I'd be more likely to put somebody just on a machine or something like that. Whereas if I'm using it for like more of a rehab context, I am much more likely to use those kinds of challenging things because it forces people to go a little bit lighter and to move in ways that they're not used to moving. And so that's kind of more my preference in, in the rehab context. So it depends a lot on the intent. The other context here is for patients who have uh, balance issues that present a significant barrier to their ability to train that are may not be as likely or easy to improve. For example, if I were training somebody who had like pretty substantial, like, you know, neuromuscular disease or a neurological disorder, maybe like more significant Parkinson's to the point where they are not really able to train as productively with free weight stuff, then that would be my next move in that kind of a situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and similarly from a hypertrophy standpoint, if you're really trying to control for like fatigue and you think about the factors that contribute to fatigue from a training session, uh, absolute load is going to be a thing, range of motion and the amount of muscle mass being used, or those are the three like sort of primary, uh, sort of factors there. And so like comparing like a hammer strength chest press or machine based chest press to bench press, as far as which one's going to cause more fatigue for a given amount of volume. I think the bench press is why, cause you're using more muscle mass, you know, with your trunk, with your legs, et cetera, versus the machines doing all that for you. And so if the target is hypertrophy, it's like, 
look, there's no balance issue here, but it's like you're going to get less fatigue for a given amount of volume from the machine-based chest press. And that may be desirable depending on what you're training for. But as always, exercise selection should reflect the needs and the goals of the individual rather than like this religious sort of (laughs) subscription to free weights are way better. It's like, Hey, look, if you like free weights, that's great. Guess what? You're on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We love free weights too, but that's not to the exclusion of machines or other types of training. There's plenty of ways to get strong, plenty of ways to get big, plenty of ways to get in better shape. And I don't know that we need to exclude any of those ways. Yeah. And I think both of us routinely use machines in our training these days and have for a long time anyway on a pretty routine basis. Do you have a favorite machine that you're currently like getting exposed I think prob- to? I don't know that I have a favorite one, um, but I think that probably the one that I use the most is like a cable row. Ooh, yeah. I think my favorite machine right now is that pendulum squat. Uh-huh. Oh boy. I just, <laughs> I mean, it's just like the the quad pump that I get out of that is unmatched. And I feel better about doing that than just doing more leg extensions, which is another great machine. (laughs) So, uh, in any case, all of the references, uh, that we, uh, to the studies that we talked about are linked in the description below. Also links to our super seminar coming up next month in Los Angeles. Really hope you guys can attend that to our supplements. Should you actually need a supplement that is GMP accredited, that is third party tested, that has all the evidence-based ingredients, that's all there. And then, you know, if this is, happens to be the first barbell medicine podcast that you've ever listened to and you made it this far, well, we got a whole library of these things. We've got at least 234 other episodes. Check those out too. But before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. 